source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. The scripture reading this morning is found in Romans chapter 3. That begins on page uh, 941 of the Blue Pew Bibles. This scripture is a great encouragement because we are Big sinners, and God's grace is bigger than our sin. Romans 3, starting at chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 21 through 31. This is the very word of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law, the word of God. Let's ask for God to open up our hearts to understand his word and to follow it. Lord, we are encouraged that you have given us this word, this letter written by Paul so many years ago and preserved for our benefit. Thank you for your grace and mercy in that. And we trust that you will give us your spirit, that we will understand your word, that we will give attention to your word, we'll be focused on your word and that we will learn and know it and hide it in our hearts and practice it in our lives, that it it will become a part of us. And, Lord, that we'll walk in new paths of faith and obedience because of your word. Lord, we depend completely upon you, as you yourself said, that we are to abide in you in order that we might bear fruit. And that abiding in you meant that your words would abide in us. And as you said that in John 15, so you said in John 8, that those are true disciples who uh, abide in your word. So, Lord, may we abide in you. May we abide in your word. 
May your words abide in us, and therefore we bear much fruit, the fruit of the character of Christ himself. Bless us, Lord Jesus. Amen. We're coming to a pivotal section in, in the book of Romans, this letter that Paul wrote. And one of the questions we need to ask, particularly some of you may have not been with us up to this point, uh, to know where we've come so far in this book. And I think all of us, because we've had a lengthy break, need to be reminded. It reminds me of those uh, cartoons like the one in the far side where two bugs are sitting on this surface and there are these sprouts all around them. You can't really tell where they are. But they're looking at a sign and it says, You are here. And it's a picture of a dog, and they see that they're right above his tail on his back. And you realize, oh, it's a couple of fleas, okay? As though probably there are hundreds of such signs all over the dog to tell you where you are as you're traveling around the dog. You are here. And so we, we need to, in a sense, know you are here. You know, we are here in this argument. It's like the guy looking at the organizational chart. You know how those charts work, and you kind of see where you are in the organization, and many people want to know. I want to know where I fit. Here's this huge chart, hundreds of boxes, and way at the bottom, there's one little box. You are here <laughs> at the very bottom. Or like the guy who, the one I like too, is he's looking at a chart, and over here it says success. And over here it says failure. And at the middle where the arrow's pointing, you are here, mediocrity. <laughs> There's one uh, that's uh, pretty cool. A skier's in front of a rectangular sign. And in the picture, it has a bare horizon with a rectangular sign. You are here. Where are you? You're in front of a rectangular sign. You know, this was to tell you you're nowhere. We don't know where you are, right? And then one of the ones that's uh, a little uh, personal, perhaps, is this guy walking with a huge bundle of stuff there. He's obviously hiking. He's got everything on his own back, and he's sweating. And, and then in front of him is a much larger wife who's in her hiking shorts, licking an ice cream cone. And he looks over to the side at the sign, and there's this big thumb, and he's under it. You are here. <laughs> Not that it applies to anyone here. I'm just saying. <clears throat> so, as we come into uh, Romans 3.21, where are we? Where are we here? And forgive me if I spend maybe more time than you expected on this, but I think it's very important for us to... Uh, have a fresh sense of where we are as we come into this uh, great section. This section, by the way, beginning with verse 21, a scholar as great as Leon Morris, not that this is the pronounced truth, but at least tells you how important he thinks it is. He said, this is the most important paragraph in literature. Well, I think anybody could really say that, of course, or even about which paragraph is the most important in the Bible. But it does let you know how highly this section is regarded and how critical it's been regarded in the history of the church. So as we see where we have been and re review what 
this section, uh, what, what, is, what this section is coming on the hills of, we look first of all at the introduction of the gospel. If you look with me in verses 16 and 17, it's very important for us to review because this is Paul's statement of his theme, and it's especially important because in verse 21 of chapter 3, the righteousness of God has been manifested Well, he's picking up from what he says in verses 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God, first phrase of chapter 3, verse 21, is revealed from faith for faith. As we said, this is probably a rhetorical way to say from beginning to end this righteousness is to be had by faith, underscored by his quote from Habakkuk, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So in that passage, the righteousness of God is uh, the, the essence of the gospel, the reason it is the power of God, the reason that God acts in salvation through this gospel is that the righteousness of God is revealed in it. That's how critical this phrase, the righteousness of God, is. It's a summary, in a way, of all that God does in the gospel. Why is it the power of God? Because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And so after this section then from verses 18 and following on man's sin, he picks up in verse 21 of chapter 3, now in this era the righteousness of God has been manifested. So we, we cannot stress too highly the importance of this phrase, the righteousness of God. And by the way, the word righteous and righteousness and just and justification, those kinds of words occur some 44 times in Romans and outside of Romans in Paul's epistles, only 25 in all the other epistles. So this is the book that speaks about this this theme of righteousness. So it's his theme stated in verses 16 and 17, and he picks that up in verse 21. Now, one thing that's very important for us to understand, again, about Romans, is that he has not been to Rome. He's planning to go there, and he writes this as a kind of introduction of himself and an introduction of the gospel that he has proclaimed. And the gospel that he has proclaimed or that he is setting forth before them is basically the gospel that he has preached around the Mediterranean basin up to this point. And it must be said as well, it's the gospel he primarily proclaimed to the Jews and Gentiles gathered in synagogues all over uh, the Roman Empire. That was the first place he went, and it was from there that he branched out and preached to others. And you see the difference in the way he preaches here. And when you read in his some of his the few sermons you see that he did preach in his synagogues, and the way he preached when he was with the pagans in Acts chapter 17, or to the pagans in Acts chapter 14 in Lystra. With them, he began with the creation of God who God is and who they are in relationship to this God and how God sustains them and how God has given them all the things of creation and then moving forward from that point. Uh, Here, he 
proclaims initially not God as... He does proclaim God as creator, but he right up front sets forth the wrath of God. And as one writer says... Now, this was a liberal writer, and he said it disparagingly about this whole letter. And we don't agree with his opinion, but this part is kind of true. He says, it's just an old synagogue sermon, okay? Like, you know, if I was asked to preach somewhere, I'd pull something off the shelf, right? And uh, that's the feeling here that this... But, but we don't say it's just an old synagogue sermon. It's the summation of his preaching in every uh, synagogue situation. It's the synagogue preaching, you might say, a summation of the synagogue preaching. And now he's setting this before the Romans uh, and expecting an agreement fundamentally with these things while at the same time trying to underscore the critical importance of this gospel message that he is preaching. So it's important for us then to understand this context as we get to this point because there's so much thus far that has been addressed to the Jews in particular. And it's what you would expect. If he was saying, this is the preaching that I have done up to this point. This is the preaching that I will take uh, as I move into the future. And so as he comes to the second section... We had then in, in this intro, the introduction of the gospel, verses 16 and 17, and the fact that he is writing to people who he doesn't know, and he's introducing himself and his gospel to them. It's interesting then when he, as he states this revelation of the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, he has in verse 18, for, which... Interestingly, this is connected. Here's the thing. The gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So immediately, we're, we're cast into this contrast that the righteousness has been revealed and the, the huge need of that righteousness, this salvation, this good news, because the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. And... He concludes, as you, many of you know, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then he goes through this litany, this largest quotation of Paul anywhere uh, uh, from the Old Testament, and it concerns the sinfulness of man as he sums up the total sinfulness of man, obviously in verse 9, embracing Jews and Greeks knowing that no human being is going to be justified uh, by their doing, that we all are under sin. But in that process of unveiling Gentile and, Greek, uh, Gentile and then Jewish sin, the emphasis even then was on Jewish sin, not to lessen Gentile sin, but because the Jews tended to think of themselves as safe within the covenant, part of the people of God, uh, a part of the ultimate promises of God. And in the Jewish literature, it was almost understood. The Gentiles are lost. They're gone. But we are going to be okay because we're the people of God. Now, based on God's gracious election, there was, you know, a hollow truth to that in the sense that, yes, God did graciously elect the Jews. There's no doubt... Of all the peoples in the earth, 
Who did God reveal him to? Who did God form as a people? Who did God bring, from whom did God bring forth his Messiah? Paul talks about this in Romans 9. The privileges of the Jews were astounding. There's no other people in the world that could point to what they had because of the grace of God. And of course, as emphasized even in the Old Testament, all of that was gracious. Abraham was part of a bunch of pagan worshipers, idol worshipers. God just snatched him out, drew him to himself, formed a people out of him. It was all gracious. Paul said in Deuteronomy 7, I didn't pick you because you were a people more numerous than others, because you were better, greater, anything. He said, I loved you because I loved you. You you look for the root. Well, why did you love us? Because I loved you. So there was nothing in you. There's nothing for you to commend yourself. He even told them, I'm planting you in the land, not because you're a righteous people, because you've been a rebellious people, but because of my covenant, because of my gracious covenant. So you see, Jewish thinking about the covenant in many ways was good, but the heart of it had melted away. It had become a brittle, stale thing in which the heart of humility and brokenness before God, the heart of trusting Him, seeing their own sinfulness, which the law itself revealed, and trusting in this God to forgive them and show mercy to them because of their sinfulness, and to renew their hearts as He commanded so many times that you must circumcise your heart, not just your flesh. All of that, by and large, had fallen away in the, in the Jewish nation. And it was just a husk of ritual, of having and hearing the law, of going through the motions, but not having the heart of a relationship to God. And so, as Paul outlines the sinfulness of the Gentiles, as we said in Sunday school, he does it in a way that was just like the way the Jews talk about the sinfulness of the Gentiles. So if you're average Jewish congregation, uh, synagogue, Paul begins to talk about the sins of the Gentiles. Boy, everybody's sitting up, up straight and they're saying, yes, 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 I agree. That's right. That's right. That's the problem with these Gentiles. And we see that Paul not only is, yes, laying out the sin of Gentiles, not to lessen that in one way, as he says in chapter 2, we know that God's judgment rightly falls on those who do such things. Yes, God's judgment falls on the Gentiles, and it should fall on the Gentiles, because they have no excuse. They have rejected the revelation of God in creation, and they've made idols, and they worship idols and rejected the living God, and God's judgment is upon them. But then, as the, almost in the echo of the Jewish agreement in chapter 2, and here's where he spends the most time in chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3, you Jews are no less guilty of sin before God. So, as he talks about the Jews, he talks about their stubbornness, their hard and impenitent heart in chapter 2, verse 5. They talk about how they have refused God's kindness and presume on that kindness. Uh, He talks about how they are self-seeking in verse 8. 
and that they practice evil. He talks later in verses 17 and following about how they say they have the law and they teach the law and they're the guides for all those who don't have the law and yet they themselves are not practicing the law. And he ends by saying, you are not circumcised of heart. And notice what he says at the end of chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Here's a summary statement that really gets to the heart of the problem of the Jews of his day. And believe you me, Paul knew because he himself had been converted from being a Jew like that. Paul was so convinced of the capability of the Jewish people to have a certain righteousness that might, he thought that we might be able to bring in the kingdom and Messiah would come as a result of all of our righteous zeal. Paul may have been even a zealot as some of the sort where he would have countenanced violence as he did against the Christians. What a shot for Paul to realize that it was not his zealous righteousness that would bring in Messiah. Messiah came and died for your sins. Talk about a turning upside down of your life and your expectation of trying to gather up zealous righteousness to bring in the kingdom when the kingdom had to be established through the death and resurrection of Messiah. But you see, that death and resurrection in the main for the Jews was an offense. It was an offense. And here's the reason. One is a Jew, verse 28, who is one, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. And of course, Paul says, yeah, technically a Jew, racially a Jew. Yes, I understand that. He he knows the meaning of the word Jew. But you see, no one is a real Jew. A Jew in fellowship with God. A Jew bearing fruit under God. A Jew that is Jew inside and out, so to speak. What a Jew was meant to be in relationship to Yahweh. But here's what a Jew is, verse 29. It's one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so Paul, along with proclaiming the sinfulness of the Jews and and how the uh, heart of their relationship to God had rotted out, also was urging them that there is a circumcision of heart. You can have the law written on your hearts as many even Gentiles are having now written on their hearts. And he even in this context talks about the Gentiles who are circumcised of heart and are beginning to fulfill the law from the heart and are beginning to live out the love of God that is uh, held forth in the law. But you Jews are not doing it. So the reason I'm stressing this, the reason I'm trying to say here we are, is that Paul begins by... The last thing he says before verse 21 of chapter 3 is, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And he has just said in verse 19, Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So he says here to the Jews, You think that those outside the law 
who don't have the law, who don't listen to the law, that they're the ones really in danger of God's judgment. And I'm telling you that whatever the law says, it says first to you. You are the ones that are guilty. You are the ones that are under God's wrath. And if you don't see that, then you yourself have not even understood your own law. Because the law brings you to that brokenness and humility or should bring you to that brokenness and humility so that you understand that you must have a new heart. You recall what Jesus said to uh, Nicodemus when he's talking about a new heart. When he's talking about being born from above. Jesus didn't say, well, Nicodemus, I I know how you, you couldn't really understand this. This is a whole new thing that I'm bringing to the table here about having a new heart. And I think we've said this before. That's not what was said. He said to Nicodemus, you're a teacher in Israel and you don't know about being born from above? You don't know about the need for heart renewal? Nicodemus, you're a teacher in Israel. This should be bread and butter for you. This should be so basic for you. God has always said, you have to be circumcised of heart. He said in the new covenant that's coming, he said in the future, I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to take out the heart of stone. I'm going to put a heart of flesh in you. There's talk all through the New Testament of the need of a new heart, the humility that is, that is required, the brokenness to realize I must have the grace of God. I must have his forgiveness. I must have his transformation. I have no hope apart from God's mercy and grace in my life. So the reason I'm stressing this is there has been a danger in the history of the church of making the whole Old Testament to be a system of works. And so now you get to Christ and now you have a system of faith. But up to that point, it was all about works. And now it's all about faith. And many times, this term works of the law would indicate that you're not even supposed to regard the law in any way. We don't even think about works of the law. We don't even think about obedience. This has gone to such an extent that people have said, you must only trust in Jesus. You must never require people even to submit in lordship to Jesus because that would do damage to this idea that there would be no works of the law. It has to be only faith, not even obedience be included in that faith, just pure faith somehow. So this idea of works of the law, as we begin to talk about the righteousness of God, it's so important that we understand Paul is talking about this Jewish abuse of the law, this Jewish destructive view of the law, that apart from all that they think that they're, that they're holding on to in terms of law-keeping, totally off the table without any regard to all this vain law-keeping that you're doing, you are to be justified uh, through faith and faith alone. And so, I want you to understand that there was a, an obedience in the Old Testament that was a proper obedience. There's an obedience in the Old Testament that in which men and women trusted in the mercy of God and then lived out the mercy of God, in which men and women uh, cried out for God's grace and rested in Him for transformation. This is the kind of faith that Abraham himself has as Paul sets forth in chapter 4. 
And in chapter 4, turn with me there to verses 5 and following. Paul uses David, as a, and this is Psalm 32, to point out this truth. To the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So, this was a reality in the Old Testament, you see. This is a reality that there were those who knew the blessedness that my lawless deeds are forgiven, that the Lord is not counting my sins against me. And they knew, and, and this psalm is a rejoicing in that. It's a psalm of confession. And before he talks about the process of confession in his life, he begins by saying, let me just start by saying how happy and wonderful it is when your sins are forgiven and God does not count sin against you. So when we talk about the, the Jewish abuse of the law, we're talking about this kind of approach to the law in which it was regarded as simply outward, uh, an outward series of rituals, an owning of the Scripture, a being at synagogue, a keeping of the Sabbath in outward ways, all the while the heart not being there. That's why Jesus talked about uh, their contempt that they had for others. The contempt of the Pharisee for the tax gatherer in his parable in Luke 18. That's why in Mark chapter uh, 3, Jesus was angry and grieved at the heart of the Pharisees as he was proceeding to heal the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. Because he saw, you have no mercy in your heart. You have no love for this man here. You have no concern for him. As you're saying, we're followers of God and we're keepers of the law. Jesus says, the law, which has as its center, love God and love your neighbor. No, the heart is gone. It's just an outward structure now. You don't realize your own sinfulness. This uncircumcised heart, this stiff-necked approach, this refusal of God's kindness. And so they thought of themselves as within God's acceptance but because they minimize their own sinfulness, because they minimize their own need for grace, they were actually holding on to these things as a means of their righteousness before God. They actually thought their situation was not that serious. It was a false way to approach the Word of God. And that's why when Christ was presented to the Jews, a Christ who declared death was necessary for your salvation. Death was necessary for your forgiveness. A resurrection from the dead is necessary so that you might have new life. All of that was rejected. But the point is not that they were serving God faithfully and then when Messiah came along, they suddenly rejected God Here's the the terrible irony is that in their rejection 
of the mercy of God in Christ, it showed that all along they have rejected the mercy of God. They had rejected Yahweh himself. Though they had the name of the people of God, they actually hated Yahweh. And when Yahweh showed up in the person of Christ, they turned against him. And so by such works of the law, such a hanging on of the outward things, not realizing the heart of the issue that I'm undone by sin, that I'm in bondage to sin, I'm under the guilt of sin, I must have a deliverer. I must have a redeemer. That's at the heart of Old Testament and New Testament. But by this time, the Jews had lost the heart of the Old Testament gospel. And Paul says that the gospel was proclaimed to Abraham. They lost the heart of the promise and only held to the outward uh, structure of things and no longer had a heart for God or a heart from people. And of course, we have to ask ourselves, where am I? You can... In America, we can begin to think, I attend church. A lot of people don't attend church. A lot of people. I pass by people all the time. They're not even going to church. And I go every Sunday just about. I'm here. Okay. Cheap. Okay. One check. I'm, I'm not just there on Sunday. There are people that are there just on Sunday morning. The only time I ever see them, Sunday morning at church. They don't come to Sunday school. They come to small group. They don't do any activities. I do a pretty good bit at the church. I'm there a lot. I'd say I'm an active member of the church. I'm an American citizen. <laughs> I mean, I belong to America. And, and I'm a law-abiding citizen. I'm not wreaking havoc out there like a lot of people are. And I'm a man in my community. I'm a good family man. I've never committed adultery with my wife, against my wife. I'm faithful and diligent at work. I don't call in sick when I'm not. And I mean, I've got a lot of things going for me. And it's real easy when all those things are there. And the thought is for success and learning the next thing to make my life work better and be a little cleaner and more organized. And especially if you're pretty proficient at life and you're, you do things well and you're making some money and all those, it's pretty easy. The greatest, greatest danger is to be just like these Jews. And ultimately, really you've never been just broken before God and cried out, as Jesus said, we must cry out, in effect, with the, the tax gatherer, oh, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Jesus says, that's the man that went justified. Not the tax gatherer who said, gosh, I'm, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I, I thank you that I tithe. I thank you that I'm being faithful in all these areas. He was giving God glory for all the good things that he was doing. But he did say this. He looked with contempt on others. And so for us, as we come into this section, we're going to hear it's 
by His grace as a gift, verse 24. And we're going to hear words like redemption, a ransom paid to release you from bondage. Bondage, like Israel was in Egypt or in exile. He's going to use the word propitiation, which means a satisfaction of God's wrath. It had to be accomplished. So you come to grips with the depths of your sin. All of this, the only reason this can be good news, as he talks about redemption and propitiation and this gift and grace, is that we see what he says in verse 23, I have sinned. I fall short of the glory of God. I have no hope except God show mercy on me. That can never leave as the heart of our approach to God. Never. It never can drift from, I used to really cling to, and and I, I think sometimes we think this, you know, maybe in 10 or 15 years, I won't have to cling so much to Christ all the time. You know, early on, you know, you become a Christian, you feel like, oh, I'm just clinging, just praying for His grace every day. And, you know, sooner or later, I'll be able to just kind of coast. No, you won't. No. In fact, a sign of growth in grace is that the clinging is even greater after 15 years. More and more when you wake up in the morning, you're saying, oh, Lord God, keep me. Keep me. Continue your promises to me. Continue to work in me by your grace. You are all I have. You're all I have. It's going to be so encouraging when we talk about the righteousness of God, which is powerful, saving action to rescue us. Oh, how glorious. I'm going to close with two you are here's. There's a you are here where this guy's falling off a cliff. And he looks at a sign on the side of the cliff. And it pictures him, you are here, falling off the cliff. You know, shows the cliff and you are here falling. Well, I want to say to you that if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, we could say you are under the wrath of God. You are here. You are falling. You are falling. You are doomed. He begins this section in chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed against all. Whatever form of your ungodliness, whether you're a religious person or not a religious person, whether you've been on drugs or hadn't been on drugs, it's not the details. It's the fact that all, all in their heart have refused God as their, as their God. All of us. And his wrath is upon every single form of that, which means every single person. And you will face that wrath and suffer that wrath, except for the mercy of God, which he freely offers you. And as he says in chapter 11, he shut us all up to disobedience so that we all are convinced of disobedience so that he can have mercy. His mercy. He shut you up to disobedience. He shut you up so that you realize, I have no hope. He doesn't do that just so you walk out and have a cloud over your life the rest of your life. It's so that you will say, oh, Lord, I embrace your mercy. One of my favorite ones, it apparently it has God looking at the world, a picture of the world. And it says, 
you are here, but the here's are X's all over the world. You're here and here and here and here. And at the bottom it says, you're everywhere. <laughs> As though God needs to say, where am I? Oh, yeah, I'm everywhere. You know, that kind of thing. But I want to, I want to use that to say, his mercy is here. His mercy is available to you. His mercy is yours. This good news is revealed. God's righteous salvation to save you has been made known. He gives himself right now to you. Jesus Christ is yours if you'll trust in him right now. He's everywhere. And he is here to be yours from this minute on if you will trust him. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, how easy it is for us to abuse even the privileges of the church, for us to abuse your kindness, to take for granted when things are good. Lord, and also to despair when things are not so good. We'll use anything, whether good or bad, to keep from trusting you. We'll turn to despair when things are bad. We'll think you not good. We'll blame you. We'll be fearful of you and dread you. And we'll use it as an excuse not to be owned by you, not to be governed by you. We like to say that you're not merciful, so we don't have to be responsible to respond to you and give our lives up to your mercy. Oh, Lord, what a subtle way to maintain our independence. Yes, blame God for everything that's gone wrong. And then when things are good, we'll use that to stay away from you. We use that to fortify ourselves and depend on our own ingenuity, our own brains, our own success in school or work or family or whatever. The success of our own children, the goodness of our own children. What a great parent we are. We'll use anything to push you away and not, not say that we are helpless. We are undone apart from Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, apart from you, we are in bondage to sin. And apart from you, we are under guilt of sin. And apart from you, we will endure the wrath of God forever. And yet Jesus Christ is, has come into this world. The Father himself has sent him so that we might have a deliverer. Your righteousness, O oh God, has been revealed. Your desire and power to save. Oh, may there be not one person here who pushes you away one minute more. But even now, trust in Jesus Christ to take away the guilt of their sin, to renew them and to give them a new heart and a new capacity to love you and to love others. And then to increase and nurture that plant, that new life until their final day. Oh, Lord. Show your mercy even now, great God of mercy. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. 
Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night. Chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away